Welcome to the Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss the mayhem in downtown Chicago, newly discovered work from Zora Neale Hurston, and the birth of America. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for August 14, 2020. I-94 chatted with Genevieve West, editor of a new collection of stories by the late Zora Neale Hurston, hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick. West talked about why Hurston was forgotten, her conservative politics, and the grace of her writing. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Genevieve, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to uh, thank Genevieve. We've had to do quite a bit of rescheduling because of the, the COVID situation. So thank you for being patient with us. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Let's start off with, uh, first of all, Zora Neale Hurston's been uh, dead for a long time. Sometimes we get a question like, oh, why didn't you talk to the author? Well, it's impossible in this case. She passed away in 1960. Um, but Zora Neale Hurston is an interesting and very complex figure in American letters, uh, an African-American woman who was born in the late 1800s uh, and really was part of the Harlem Renaissance and contemporary with people like Richard Wright, who was not necessarily a fan of hers. Uh, Langston Hughes, and other seminal figures that we really look at as the golden age of black literature in this country. Um, Hurston was also uh, politically conservative, which is unusual uh, for people in that milieu. She was a Republican, uh, and she, I believe she was a Barry Goldwater supporter as well, if memory serves. I could be wrong about that. But she was a very um, influential writer once she was rediscovered after her death. Uh, I believe it was Alice Walker who really led the charge to uh, lead people to read Hurston again and rediscover what made her so special. Yeah, Walker helped uh, get her a gravestone. She had an unmarked grave in a weed-filled cemetery yeah, apparently so, so she was forgotten so, you know basically and we you know we, this follows we talked about frank yerby actually last week genevieve another african-american author who has been kind of forgotten uh, to time though was very popular during uh their lifetime can you tell us a little bit about hurston's life and what made her such a memorable and magnetic figure this is clearly a, a labor of love for you just you know judging by your introduction and, and all the work you've done on it what makes her such a, a seminal figure in american letters you know i think there are so many things um their eyes were watching god i think has really been central to hurston becoming a part of american education so students will read hurston in ap courses Um, She's on the AP exam these days. Um, And their eyes are watching God has really been central to that. Um, And as you noted, Alice Walker has played an important role. Um, Hurston really restores a voice that um, some of her contemporaries would rather we not encounter today um, in our reading. There was a lot of concern about stereotypes and how Hurston's recording of vernacular African-American speech might be tapping into those stereotypes, or at least for white readers tapping into some of those stereotypes. Um, But I think a lot of readers today recognize that what Hurston was doing was looking um, very thoughtfully at problems that still plague us today. And so I think part of why people continue to read her and why she's so important is that she speaks to issues that we're still wrestling with. 
Um, so for popular readers, I think that's really important. For academics, we're still wrestling with um, the way that Hurston managed to merge fiction and folklore and anthropology. She managed to weave a lot of these kind of discrete academic traditions into really beautiful works of fiction, as well as works of folklore and anthropology. So we're really still grappling with those issues as academics. Well, let's, I want to back up a little bit because you, you raised two really interesting points. I mean, she was a trained anthropologist. She went to Barnard uh, and Columbia, I believe, as well, uh, and, and studied that and did a great deal of research on it, um, some of which was you know, not acknowledged during her lifetime. But you mentioned the use of vernacular and how she was criticized for that. And I mentioned Richard Wright. Uh, he implicitly and explicitly criticized her, thinking uh, that some of her books were presenting um, kind of a sanitized, acceptable face of American blacks to white readers. Um, and it's interesting looking at these stories today because I, I don't know if, I mean, and you could be able to answer this better than I was. I was very struck by her merging of kind of folk tales and fairy tales with vernacular in a way that, that really suggested to me a, a deep love for the rhythms of voices, idiomatic expressions, and basically the rhythm of speech that was in uh, the places that she was living. And I, I think, you know, at this distance, you know, here in 2020, my, my view of it is probably different than it would have been in 1930 or 1940. Um, but I was struck reading this, um, how deep and how involved some of these very fantastical folk tales were, and how they really fit into a long literary tradition that goes, you know, beyond the Brothers Grimm. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting part of Hurston's life that, candidly, I, I was not familiar with until this book. Absolutely. Um, you know, Wright was, Wright actually went further than accusing Hurston of sanitizing. He accused her of exploiting black folk traditions. He accused her of minstrelsy um, very directly in 1937. And um, obviously, I don't think that's what she was up to. Um, and a lot of readers would agree with me. Um, but really, my love for Hurston began with trying to understand how Richard Wright and I and Alice Walker, how the three of us had read the same book, their eyes were watching God and come up with such very different conclusions about what Hurston was up to. I read a, a graphic novel biography of Hurston by Peter Bagg. Have you ever, have, are you familiar with that? I have not seen that. I would love to see it. Oh, it was released by Fanographics. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And um, he brought up a, a there's a, several incidents between her and Wright in the book, but he also said that I believe when she got her advance for the eyes were watching God, I know she had a benefactor too when she did her uh, studies in Haiti and Jamaica, but she bought a pistol and a brand new car and then toured the South and apparently didn't have too many issues while she was doing that. And she was very, uh, very headstrong, uh, very feminist persona for her time, especially for being African-American in the South during that era. Did you ever hear that story? Um, I have not heard the story about her interactions with Wright. Um, she did have um, a patron or a benefactor um, during the 20s and into the early 30s. And it's the same person who supported um, Langston Hughes 
as he wrote his first novel, and she also assisted Claude McKay. I think the fact that Hurston had this white patron is part of the reason that people began to be skeptical of Hurston and her motives for recording black folk speech in the way that she did. Um, but she did absolutely take car. I don't think it was a brand new car, but she did take a car. Um, she called it Sassy Susie. <laughs> and in the late 20s, she drove across the American South by herself. And, <clears throat> you know, you have to kind of stop and think about what this means, because in our own time, this is not a big deal. In her time, not only was she female, but she was African-American. And those two things made her incredibly vulnerable on the road alone as she drove across the South, because this is the Jim Crow era. Um, hotels, restaurants, all kinds of things that we take for granted would have been segregated. And she wouldn't have had access to the kinds of accommodations that you might have expected or that we would have expected for somebody in our own time. Um, and actually watching um, the movie Green Book made me really think about Hurston and the fact that she drove across the South and wondering if she used a Green Book right, to find places to stay as she traveled. And uh, if you could expand on that a little bit, it, it made me think of our show last week on, on Frank Yerby. And there was discussion of a, of a piece he wrote in Harper's about how and why he wrote the novels he writes. And he was pretty explicit about works of art not being uh, political claptrap or Whatever he, whatever he was a cantankerous character. Yes, yeah. yes, he was. Well, he was hard alone. to imagine now that you know anything wouldn't be politicized because it seems like everything that's coming out's politicized. Well, I mean, and at, at that time, a writer like Richard Wright or uh, you know, I think James Baldwin was mentioned last week. It, they're they thought of their own art as sp specifically as political tracks, um, and so I, I wanted to know if if that's where the uh, the difference in interpretation came that you were talking about with Hurston's work. You know, Alice Walker has said um, of their eyes were watching God that there is no book more important to her. Um, and Richard Wright, on the other hand, accused Hurston of minstrelsy. Well, you don't have to read a lot of Alice Walker to realize that she's not going to um, promote or believe or read something that she sees as promoting minstrelsy. So you have those two very different perspectives. Um, you know, Wright's <clears throat> review of Their Eyes Were Watching God and the novel appeared in 37. And we're moving towards the peak of the protest tradition in American literature at that point. Um, in 1939 and 1940, we would get Richard Wright's massive native son, and we would also get Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. So at the time, you have a literary tradition and a literary culture that is moving towards protest, and it's a protest that is very focused on class and socioeconomic issues. Hurston was more interested in race and gender than she was class. <clears throat> so one of the things I say in my book is that Hurston's work was caught in a kind of turning tide where she's focused on issues of race that were very predominant during the Harlem Renaissance. She's also very focused on gender. 
class is less of an interest of hers, but it is very much the dominant interest in American literary culture in the late 1930s. So she's just a little bit out of step with what her contemporaries are doing at the time. Um, I think that that her contemporaries also just did not see her treatment of gender roles in the way that we do today. They didn't see it as political. And of course, the Communist Party believed that if America would address issues of class, then matters of race and gender would also be addressed. So there are a lot of kind of competing ideas working against Hurston in 37. Um, and of course, when I come to it in, I think I read it for the first time in like 1989 or 1990, I'm coming at it from an entirely different perspective, and so is Alice Walker. So we're, we're just seeing the novel very differently. And then also having read so much of Hurston's work, reading her, her letters, her short stories, her folklore and her anthropology, I feel like I have a very good grasp of what Hurston was up to and what her goals were. Um, and that's all material that Richard Wright would not have had access to in his own lifetime. Rocky, what about the talk about plans to retire? No, the only st statement I had made was there are a few people who would like to see me uh, retire, uh, my wife and mother and friends, and uh, I just mentioned that fact, but right now it looks like you know, she'll be pretty active. You have no plan at all to retire after now? No. What do you think of Archie Ward as an opponent? He is one of the best. The game is certainly was in there fighting all the way. I hit him with plenty of good punches. He avoided quite a few. He is a top target challenge. One of the toughest, along with the first Ezra Charles fight. Uh, what about the knockdown, Rock? How did you do right after that? Okay. No, I wasn't. I was up at the counter too. And uh, I remember just where my hand was. And, uh, I went right after Smith spoke with Alderman Chris Taliaferro about the looting and rioting downtown this weekend. Taliaferro discussed the long-standing inequalities in Chicago, the tensions between the police and residents on the south side, and much more. News from the Service Entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining us on the telephone is the Alderman of the 29th Ward, Mr. Chris Taliaferro. Hello, Alderman. How are you today? I'm doing well, Mario. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate you being on today, and I appreciate you taking my call. And thank you to Michaela Blaze, who is the, the best on earth. Thank you to uh, both no, of you. No problem at all. Um, so I, I have so many questions for, uh, for you. <laughs> um, let's start with um, 
I'm, I'm more interested today in solutions, but I want to go back just to, to frame that with what happened on uh, Sunday morning. I'm sorry, early Monday morning uh, mm-hmm. here in Chicago with the looting. This wasn't an uprising. This wasn't based on protest. This was looting. Um, but yeah. there are different takes on on it. I, and I'm interested in your take. You were at the press conference with the mayor. Here's, a, here's another opportunity for you to speak your piece. And, and I'm, I'm curious as to how you feel about what happened and how can we come up with a viable solution so that these things can not happen again. I, I, and I appreciate that, um, getting an opportunity, Mario, to, uh, to discuss that even a little further. Um, it, you know, the looting did have a, a basis in protest. And in other words, um, the, the foundation of, of, of what started and what caused things to start uh, was the, the, the protest of the shooting um, of a 20-year-old gentleman uh, by the police. So that laid the foundation for uh, a, a bunch of folks to gather in the Inglewood uh, community uh, to protest the shooting itself. Mm-hmm. The problem began when there was a lot of misinformation that I believe although I can't substantiate this, but that I believe was purposefully sent out, stating that uh, the gentleman was 15 years old and that he had been killed uh, and that the police officers on, on the scene planted a weapon um, on the gentleman. Uh, where that was, you know, it could have been any further from the truth. In fact, you know, the, the gentleman uh, was 20 years old um, and ended up, leaving the scene and running home um, and, a, and a weapon was recovered and found at the scene uh, that had not been planted. And so that served as a, a, a somewhat of a narrative or false basis uh, to cause a large group um, at around 6 p.m. on Sunday uh, to begin disseminating uh, false and purposefully false information to say, let's go downtown, let's caravan downtown and loot. And so that's how things uh, uh, began. Uh, the logical response from, uh, well, the illogical response from the, the shooting that occurred. Uh, it was shocking. I mean, I woke up to shock. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was certainly saddened. And, and once again, you, you know, you go through a sense of being heartbroken because we are, we are still trying to recover um, as a neighborhood and as a community, as a city, from the looting in, that, that occurred um, late May and early June. Right. So it, it left me in that same position, in the same feeling that once again we are we are setting ourselves up for failure in our own neighborhoods. How do we, as a city, it, it, it's easy to ask this question. It's a lot harder to come up with the answer. How do we, as a city, make this right? And and let me just throw these couple of tidbits in for you. We have a new police chief who has no real idea how Chicago works. He's learning on the go mm-hmm. as, as he's working his job, but not, not given that, that um, it's been a baptism by fire for him. I will give him that. Not the easiest way mm-hmm. to come into a brand new gig. I understand that. But this, some of this seems to be tone deaf. And I'm wondering if the city council, um, has been able to speak to some of these things. I, I read that there's an effort uh, uh, afoot to get 
him to sit down in front of the council and kind of break down why these things have been happening. But uh, your feeling about it is should should the, should there be a special session of the council where they where, where the aldermen all sit down with the police chief and 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 get these questions answered from him? And how much of an answer are you going to get from somebody that's really really new at their job? And you know, I don't I don't know whether our superintendent can you know can give us those answers either. Mm-hmm. Um, those answers lie in the um, in the thoughts and minds of uh, our younger generation and the generation that that are that's out uh, making their statement. That's where the answers lie, and I think we do have short term solutions and long term solutions. Uh, these young men and women, rightfully, and I, I say rightfully, when they peacefully protest about. Uh, the disinvestments in the black community, uh, they're, they're speaking and want to be heard and wanting, wanting to be heard um, at the same time. And they can't be overlooked. Right. So that answer doesn't lie with the superintendent, but what, what these young folks in the younger generation is telling us, and they're telling us um, somewhat ma- much more mature folks that, that look, we want to be heard. We want investments in our community. We want investments in our neighborhoods. We want better education. We want better job opportunities. Um, because so far, they've been platform statements. And when I say platform statements, politicians are quick to include myself. Politicians are quick to stand on the platform and say, I want better education. I want better um, um, job opportunities, better uh, mental health services in the community better social services in the community and it doesn't go much further beyond that and what our younger generation has said no we're tired of you speaking about it we want to see action toward it and so i I think what their what their what their statement is 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 grounded in righteousness and it is grounded in good it's just that we have to deliver And, and and so so when does the delivery begin I guess is the question because let, let's just and and I I think you were alderman at the time I'm almost sure you were when Rahm Emanuel closed or or ushered, no, I, you weren't alderman then. Forty seven schools have been I, closed. I, uh, you should have been. Yeah, alderman. I was. I, I, no, I was not city council uh, city councilman then, but I certainly would have voted against that and the closure of uh, mental health clinics. How how do we? But, what, what what is it? Where does the end game with that? Because now that we've seen. The disenfranchisement that those events are causing. A lot of this is a result of not having proper schools. Schools make neighborhoods great. Period. Great schools make great neighborhoods greater. Without schools yeah. and without mental health facilities, and no one talking about the reopening of these facilities, even if they're being repurposed as mental health facilities uh, in these yeah. schools. When does that conversation begin in earnest? We already know that that is what people want. And that that conversation, it, it, it should have been had already. And and I think um, under Rahm Emanuel's administration, um, his idea was, uh, so to speak, to privatize a lot of that, to put more of these services um, in the hands of private organizations and private um, private groups, which doesn't necessarily help our community that much uh, more than it did before. Uh, but I, I am, you know, and, and I don't, Generally, I don't stand up and, and honk anybody's horn, mm-hmm. but I'm very proud at the movement and the things and the, and the initiatives 
that have been started by this current administration uh, to invest in our neighborhoods and to invest in our communities, and not with lip service, but with actual dollars, with actual uh, um, jobs and education. That's what I'm, I'm excited to see for Chicago's future. But at the same time, we, we have to not just impart our wisdom to our younger generation and let them know that change is not going to happen overnight. But if you're seeing change happening, if you're seeing a difference, let's ask for more and let's demand for more, but let's do it in a manner that does not harm our own community. Because, uh, you know, and I'll say this very briefly, one of the things that's not being taken into consideration, and, and I keep saying this, is you may loot downtown, but because of the looting and the possibility of it being in the neighborhoods, insurance rates will skyrocket. Mm-hmm. And because, because the insurance rates skyrocket for the average business owner on the west and south side, they can no longer afford to operate because overhead is too high. They can no longer afford to operate in our neighborhoods, and we lose resources as a result. So in some cases, in, in, in trying to push for a better community, we harm our community as well by taking from resources. Uh, because when a, when, a, when a business closes, the jobs go gone, the store lies vacant. It becomes a, a source of uh, a target for vandalism, a target for uh, squatters. And that harms the community. So I, I see if I can impart any wisdom uh, on our younger generation is the demand for change and, and, and stay the course, but don't harm your, 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 your efforts at the same time and harm your community whom you're trying to do better for. Oh, hey man, you have another heart attack? Oh, Jess, oh, geez. You gotta get me off the streets. No, somebody finally cashed that check? Yes. You gotta believe me, it's much too hot out here. It's like 65 degrees, Kyle. Yes. Come on. <sighs> okay, okay, but if uh, this is just, another just, attempt thank to you, thank sort you. my underwear, I'm kicking your ass out into a fire barrel. Yes, I have the seed of our future in my hand. All right, What what is the plot? Yes, stop flopping around. This is serious. This is crazy serious. I have in my pocket right here enough to open a diaper dispensary. Oh, you got it? I did it. Our own diaper dispensary, Jess. It's the biggest grab since the alligator in Humble Park last summer. How the hell are you going to afford ah! that? How the hell did you Where get did in you? here, John? What, what are you talking about? You guys ran into the radio station and you're sitting on my lap. Oh, so I am. Can you get up? No. No. So, uh, but... What do you mean, afford that? It's like 50 grand for a growing license, non-refundable. Not true, Johnny boy. I got the crafts license. Uh... I have to say, Kyle seems surprisingly up on the new law here. What are you doing here? You ran into the radio station, Jess, and and Kyle's doing something really disgusting with my shoes. Those aren't shoes. Those are Crocs. Kyle, my wife gave these to me. I got one on you, Johnny. The craft license is my ticket right out of the basement. The craft license is 5,000. And it's meant Underprivileged for... Underprivileged folk like myself. Yes, but... Uh, I'm, wait, hold, hold on a sec. You don't think I'm underprivileged? It's, like, basically the name of his neighborhood? No, hold that's on a not. Sec. Are you racist to Undertown, John Boy? Wow, that is not yeah, a this... good look. Oh, no, that's John, not... Johnny Boy, I am so deeply wounded by your statements. Oh, How does it feel to be canceled? Wait, that's not... <laughs> 
Oh, Listen, as <laughs> Kyle's oh, emotional support animal and with his power of attorney, oh. I... What the ship? This is uh, clearly oh, harassment, geez. and uh, as my client... Okay, Jess, cut the, cut the crap. Here's 20 bucks. Thank you. Holy shit. I still have no idea why you guys burst in here. And why the hell are you still on John's lap? It's kind of plushy. Like, I'm really cozy here. <sighs> Fine. The truth is, Kyle actually had a great idea. Thank you. I know I did. Yes. And Thank you. in Kyle's pocket, he has our ticket to financial freedom. I do. Now behold. Uh, uh, that looks like a cotton diaper. What else would it be? Uh, what the hell, Kyle? I gave you money to go out and buy, like, seeds or plants or cuttings. Jess, a diaper dispensary doesn't use seeds. Kyle. What the heck do you think a dispensary sells? Uh, it's a diaper dispensary, John. A diaper dispensary. I got this great place on 55th. I got the license and everything. It's going to be great. <sighs> Kyle, what What? Just the... remember Radio Manners. Come I on. I don't care. Where did the money go? Swaddling tape and these fancy ads. Come experience swaddling like never before. I'm I'm completely at sea, Kyle. That's new even for you this. You guys don't segment. get it. Jess is an expert swaddler. She can wrap a man like Kyle. I told you this probably violates my plea Jess, deal. The alderman has been ringing my drop phone off the hook. I tell you, this is our ticket to the big time. The alderman. And I might have a relationship with him or her, depending. Uh, as heard in Size Matters eighty one. But I'm telling you, people will pay to be swaddled. Wrapped in a soothing cloth and told everything's gonna be okay. Uh, you just wait. Welcome to the South Shore Green Diaper Spensary. Can I help um, you? Um, um, is the swaddler available? She sure is. There, there. Isn't that comfortable? It's like being held by mommy. Ugh. Kyle, I. We've Can't. already made 1,500 simoleons today, Jess. Oh, yeah? 1,500s. And really? we're booked into next year. Yeah, excuse me, Swaddler. I'm chafing. Christ. Who knew everyone was so competitive about whose baby? Excuse me, I'm really oh, chafing. Oh, coming. I'll be right there with some soothing talc. This week on the Trump Diaries, as many as 200,000 Americans may now have died from COVID. Trump claims Biden is against God and calls Kamala Harris nasty. Congress remains deadlocked on a new stimulus. Barr calls Black Lives Matter an anti-government movement. Trump admits he is trying to tank the post office and football fans start to turn on Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1,296, August 7th. The United States has now hit a grim mark of 5 million infections, by far the most of any nation in the world. COVID-19 is set to become the third leading killer of Americans this year. Negotiations over a new relief package failed after Trump rejected a Democratic offer to compromise on the $1 trillion Republican plan and their $3.4 trillion plan. Democrats had offered to compromise at $2 trillion. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin called the offer a non-starter. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said that Trump would move ahead with executive orders to suspend payroll taxes instead. Meadows has apparently been very involved in the talks. A number of Democrats say he is there to prevent Mnuchin from compromising with their party. Trump, meanwhile, tweeted, quote, Pelosi and Schumer only interested in bailout money for poorly run Democratic cities and states. Nothing to do with China virus. Want $1 trillion, no interest. We are going a different way. 
New York State has sued to dissolve the National Rifle Association, alleging the organization repeatedly and willfully violated nonprofit laws by illegally diverting tens of millions of dollars. New York State's Attorney General alleges insiders at the NRA used padded expenses and no-bid contracts to benefit relatives or close associates. The suit names NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre as a co-conspirator, alleging he funneled millions of dollars in his own pocket. In addition, Carl Racine, the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., filed a similar suit against the NRA and its charitable foundation, which is based in that city. In a late-night move yesterday, Trump made it illegal to transact with TikTok's Chinese owner, ByteDance. Microsoft is bidding to take over that company. That sale would have to close by September 15th. Trump's order is likely to face a court challenge. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis told his state health directors not to tell school boards whether the risks of opening campuses were too great. State leaders told school boards they would need health department approval if they wanted to keep classrooms closed. Health directors were ordered only to provide suggestions on how to reopen. Trump claimed that Joe Biden, a devout practicing Catholic, is, quote, against God and would hurt God and the Bible if he was elected president, saying falsely that Biden would, quote, take away your guns, destroy your Second Amendment, no religion, no anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God. He's against guns. Biden responded that Trump's rant was beneath the office he holds. Day 1297, August 8th. The head of national counterintelligence told Congress that Russia is now using a range of measures to interfere in the 2020 election. Russia has hired a Ukraine national who has met with Trump's personal lawyer to, quote, undermine former Vice President Joe Biden's candidacy and the Democratic Party as a whole. Trump tried to go it alone this weekend with a series of executive orders that are already being challenged in court. Among the moves were an eviction moratorium, a new benefit to supplement unemployment assistance for workers, and a temporary delay in payroll tax for low- and middle-income workers. Administration officials were put on the defensive, at times contradicting one another this weekend as they tried to explain how those measures would work. Trump was told that E. Jean Carroll's defamation case against him can proceed after a judge rejected his attempt to claim an immunity defense. Carroll sued Trump last November for defamation after he called her a liar and said he had never met her despite photos of the two together. She has accused him of rape. Carroll is now seeking to depose Trump and get a DNA test from him to compare it with a sample on a dress the author said she wore at the time of the alleged attack. Facebook reportedly fired an employee who demonstrated the company is giving right-wing pages preferential treatment. Facebook removed that employee's post from an internal communication platform and restricted internal access to the information he cited. The employees showed that Facebook allowed conservative news outlets and personalities to spread false information without penalties. Facebook also removed so-called strikes so that conservative pages were not penalized for repeated violations. White House aides apparently reached out to South Dakota Governor Kristi Nem asking, quote, what is the process to add additional presidents to Mount Rushmore? Nem privately presented Trump with a four-foot replica of Mount Rushmore that included his face. Trump then denied his team approached Nem about adding his face to the monument, quote, although that sounds like a good idea to me. Day 1298, August 9th, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo reportedly warned Russia's foreign minister against paying bounties to Taliban militants for killing American service members. Pompeo's warning is the first known response from a senior American official over that bounties program. Trump insists the program, quote, is a hoax. 
In a bizarre interview on Fox, Attorney General William Barr claimed Democrats and the left are intent on, quote, tearing down the system for total victory. Barr called Black Lives Matter an anti-government operation that has been co-opted and is part of a coordinated effort to push Trump out of office. Quote, the left wants power because that is essentially their state of grace in their secular religion. They want to run people's lives so they can design utopia for all of us, and that's what turns them on. It's the lust for power, and they weren't expecting Trump's victory, and it outrages them. CNN reported that Trump's advisors did not want to present military options amid tensions with North Korea and Iran. The advisors feared Trump might accidentally take the United States to war. Senior administration members also reportedly informed their counterparts in both nations they did not know how Trump would respond or if he would respond at all. A federal appeals court ruled that House Democrats can sue to force former White House counsel Don McGahn to comply with a congressional subpoena for testimony. The Judiciary Committee first subpoenaed McGahn in April 2019. Trump directed McGahn not to appear. Trump donor-turned-postmaster General Louis DeJoy has imposed cost-cutting measures on the U.S. Postal Service that workers there say have delayed mail delivery. DeJoy implemented policies that prohibit postal workers from taking overtime or making extra trips to deliver mail on time. DeJoy also unveiled a sweeping overhaul of the mail service, displacing the two top executives overseeing day-to-day operations. Democrats have called for an investigation of Joy and those cost-cutting measures that have slowed mail delivery, saying it will improperly affect voting by mail. For example, people in Philadelphia have gone weeks without receiving first-class mail. DeJoy also told states they'll need to pay first-class 55-cent postage to mail ballots to voters rather than the normal 20-cent bulk rate. That is a 200% increase in election costs to states. The White House is exploring executive actions Trump could take to curb mail-in voting. Advisors have reportedly considered everything from directing the Postal Service not to deliver ballots to stopping local officials from counting them after Election Day. And Trump walked out of a news conference after a female reporter challenged him on a lie. Trump has repeatedly claimed he is the one who got the Veterans Choice Program passed, saying, quote, They've been trying to get that passed for decades and decades and decades, and no president's ever been able to do it, and we got it done. This is untrue. Obama signed the program into law in 2014. And when CBS News White House correspondent Paula Reed pointed that out, Trump called on another reporter instead, and then walked away as the song YMCA played. Day 1299, August 10th. Trump signed four executive actions at his Bedminster Golf Club that would defer payroll taxes, student loan payments, and evictions through the end of the year. Trump then claimed this will, quote, pretty much take care of this entire situation. The orders create an additional $400 per week unemployment benefit until 2021 out of thin air. States, however, must apply for it and then pick up the tab for 25% of it. Leading governors from both parties say it is unworkable. It is also unclear how these orders are legal as Congress controls federal spending. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called them, quote, absurdly unconstitutional. Trump's lawyers accused Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance of, quote, still fishing for a way to justify his harassment of the president. Vance is investigating hush money payments made before the 2016 election to Stormy Daniels. He has also suggested there is massive fraud at the Trump Organization and argued that Trump is essentially trying to run out the clock. Trump sued Vance in September to block a subpoena, claiming it was issued in bad faith, it sought too much information, and constituted harassment. 
Trump directed the EPA to rescind regulations for methane gas emissions. Trump also told the EPA to end requirements that oil and gas producers have systems and procedures to detect leaks in their systems. Methane is a leading cause of global warming. Trump said he is considering accepting the Republican presidential nomination with a speech either at the Civil War battlefield of Gettysburg or at the White House. The speech of the White House would be a violation of the Hatch Act. Gettysburg, of course, is the site of the bloodiest battle of the U.S. Civil War. Trump has repeatedly defended the flying of the Confederate flag. Aides say he's enamored of speaking there because of Lincoln's famous address. And in a bizarre statement, Trump claimed the Spanish flu of 1918 ended World War II. Quote, the closest thing is in 1917, they say, the great pandemic. It certainly was a terrible thing where they lost anywhere from 50 to 100 million people. Probably ended the Second World War. All the soldiers were sick. That was a terrible situation. The Second World War, of course, was in 1939. Day 1300, August 11th. The Democratic ticket was set as Joe Biden selected Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. Harris is the first black woman and the first person of Indian descent to be nominated for a national office by a major party. She is only the fourth woman in history to be chosen for one of the presidential tickets. Harris, who was a sharp critic of Biden before pivoting to become a key supporter, is considered an energetic campaigner and a party moderate. Biden continues to lead Trump by double digits in national polling. Trump responded with sexist and racist smears against Harris that were amplified by Fox News. Trump suggested that some men would feel insulted if Biden chose a woman, that Biden had, quote, roped himself into a certain group of people. He called Harris nasty and disrespectful. Quote, phony Kamala will abandon her own morals. Trump then claimed Americans will have to learn to speak Chinese if Biden wins in November. In fact, Trump donated to Kamala Harris twice in 2011 and 2013 when she was running for California Attorney General. As primaries wrapped up, Marjorie Greene, a Republican supporter of the convoluted QAnon theory, won in Georgia. That ensures she will represent her district in Congress next year. QAnon has been labeled a domestic terror threat by the FBI. Trump tweeted congratulations to her. Greene has also posted several hours of racist, anti-Semitic, and Islamophobic videos on her Facebook page. Jared Kushner met privately last weekend with Kanye West, the rapper who has filed petitions to get on November ballots for president in several states. West has not denied he is acting as a spoiler to damage the Biden campaign with his effort to get on the ballot. It's less clear that his name will be on the ballot in a place like Wisconsin. West's signature petitions are being challenged. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows canceled a daily meeting that included health professionals to discuss the raging pandemic. Instead, he has formed a new meeting to focus more on how to convince the public that Trump has the crisis under control. The USA now has 5.2 million cases and has seen at least 165,000 people dead, largely from Trump's neglect. At least 100,000 children around the United States tested positive in the last two weeks of July. Nearly 400,000 children have tested positive overall in the U.S., raising the stakes for reopening schools. A controversial loan to Kodak from Trump has been paused, causing that company's stock to tumble. The U.S. International Development Finance Corporation said that Kodak has been the subject of, quote, recent allegations of wrongdoing, and therefore it would not proceed with the deal. Kodak had been given an unusual $765 million loan to produce pharmaceutical ingredients. It was accused of insider trading after its chief executive received 1.75 million stock options the day before the loan was announced. 
Trump said he doesn't plan to require social distancing at his campaign rallies because he dislikes how it looks. You can't have empty seats. You know, if I had five empty seats, for instance, they said, would I do a rally, sir? The reason I won't do them is because you can have one seat and then seven around that seat, sir, have to be empty. Oh, that'll look great. You can't do that. Day 1301, August 12th. The White House admitted it would be providing less financial assistance for the unemployed than announced. The unemployment benefit will be $300 a week, not the $400 Trump claimed. More than 30 million Americans are now receiving some form of unemployment. Trump added Dr. Scott Atlas to his coronavirus team after watching him on Fox News. Atlas claimed falsely that it doesn't matter how many cases there are in the United States. He claimed that children under 18 years old have essentially no risk of dying, which is also false. And he claimed that children almost never transmit the disease, which is very false. Atlas has also called the idea that schools cannot reopen this fall hysteria. He has pushed for college football to be played as well. Trump claimed a mythical American suburban housewife would be on his side in November. Quote, they want safety and they are thrilled I ended the long-running program where low-income housing would invade their neighborhood. Trump's son Eric followed up by calling Kamala Harris a whore in a tweet. A federal judge in New York has invalidated rule changes made by Trump that would have allowed individuals and companies to kill large numbers of birds. U.S. District Judge Valerie E. Caproni said there is nothing in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that indicates in order for an action to be prohibited, it must be directed specifically at birds. In a bizarre call-in to the Sean Hannity show, Trump criticized wind power and mourned all the birds that are being killed by windmills. Sight and home value is going way down. If you see a windmill and hear a windmill, your home is worth half or less than half. It kills all the birds. This is not true. Some voters in the key states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan are already starting to blame Trump for the cancellation of the Big Ten football season. Frustrated restaurant and bar owners who make large amounts of their yearly money off that season pointed the finger at Trump's inability to handle the pandemic as a reason the season has been washed out. And international election observers are sending 500 monitors to the United States in November in a first, warning this will be the most challenging election in recent decades. Day 1,302, August 13th. The United States is now averaging 1,000 deaths every day from COVID-19. You're now seeing 55,000 new cases every day. The true toll of the virus may have now exceeded 200,000 in the United States, according to new numbers released this morning. The number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits fell below 1 million last week for the first time since March. However, layoffs remain exceptionally high by historical standards and the pace of rehiring has slowed. Economists also say that unlike temporary layoffs and furloughs that dominated the first weeks of the crisis, most of the new job losses are likely to be permanent. And Trump admitted on Fox News he's intentionally withholding money from the post office to sabotage mail-in voting. Quote, they need that money in order to make the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting. So therefore, they can't do it, I guess. Are they going to do it even if they don't have the money? Trump then claimed mail-in voting would cause one of the greatest frauds in history. 76% of Americans are planning on voting by mail this election due to the pandemic. Democrats and Trump remain miles apart on a stimulus deal. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin reportedly reached out to Nancy Pelosi seeking a meeting on the stalled talks. Pelosi responded that, quote, the White House is not budging from their position concerning the size and scope of a package. 
Trump claimed he would not have called on Obama to resign from office if 160,000 Americans had died. In fact, Trump said in 2014 that Obama should resign for allowing a single doctor who tested positive for Ebola to enter the United States. And Trump called for reversing showerhead flow rules, claiming, you know, my hair has to be perfect. He alleged that showers somehow don't deliver enough water. Rules on water usage were set under George Bush in 1992. Joe Biden continues to lead Trump by double digits in the most recent national polls. Biden is now supported by 51% of registered voters. Trump is supported by 41%. 80% of American teachers say they do not trust Trump on reopening schools during the coronavirus pandemic. These are the Trump Diaries. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy this track from Search and Research, The Great Grape Grapple. It was recorded and mastered by Corey L. Britton at Studio C. Thank you. 
have you been on this this detox well i'm glad you asked me about that because the answer is three days and this is no detox as uh, these charlatans on the internet have so proclaimed uh, these mixtures of various herbs and fruits you can find on the internet uh, mm. totally baseless completely and utterly devoid of any sort of proper reasoning what instead I'm doing is what? a program that is based off of, of ancient Eastern practices and that, that extends back thousands of years. Um, this is not some fad. This is not some uh, uh, scam. What I am doing is has proof, ancient and modern, that it works. Well, you, you know, we hear... I have certainly heard a lot of claims made very and almost almost copy and pasted from what you you said of of certain things that I would one hundred percent agree disagree with and have been scientifically disproven. But I'm willing to hear you out, Rowan. What what is what are the details on this on this solution that you are engaged in right now? So I am partaking in a sweat fast. Now, a fast, as I'm sure is obvious, is a sort of way of uh, limiting your fluid and, and, and food intake in a manner uh, for various purposes. But the sweat fast is unique in that it is based on not just abstaining from food and drink, but also um, limiting the intake of food and drink uh, to an absolute minimum. Uh, so before I get ahead of myself, what, what the sweat fast is based off of is the ancient Buddhist practice of Sokushin Butsu, um, which is this incredible practice that takes place in, in Tibet and many of these very um, in ancient Buddhist worlds where a monk would self-mummify themselves essentially through um, cutting down on water and eating dry foods until they – would pass as they were meditating and then thus be desiccated for all eternity in contemplation of 
Are, are you, you you're you're saying that this procedure is a is is effectively encouraging the body to cease cease living for medical purposes? No, no. There there are a number of other Simon Amy solutions that cover that area. Uh, no, this we don't take it quite as far as the ancient Buddhists would. Um, we mm. it, it is only a two to four week program where during the sweat fast, you drink only your own sweat, uh, collected through a number of means that I will discuss shortly. But you drink only your own sweat, no other food, no other water, except for sweat fast. Wait, so is. Is sweat fast? Sweat fast is. Sweat fast is not sweat, though. It it is, is that fair to say? It is not your own sweat. It is a another individual sweat. sweat. It is another individual sweat that it has is. been has been um, mixed with a number of few a uh, few all natural herbs and medicinals that encourages the sweat process. Um. And the mm-hmm. beautiful thing is, is that those herbs and medicinals actually come out in your own sweat. So uh, it's sort of a self-repeating cycle when you sweat, when you go on a sweat fast with sweat fast. Broadcast every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.